This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, uh, very good morning to all of you. Uh, Let's go to God in prayer. Uh, Dear Father, as we come before you today, we want to thank you for your word. And we just pray that this morning, once again, as we look at your word, and every time we do open your word, that uh, we would take a deep breath and let it speak to us so that we may know uh, the glories of your promises and uh, the assurance that we have and how we should live before you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So today we begin our series on the six steps about talking to Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I think it's sort of a theme is about what drives us. Right? Like what uh, motivates you, what gives you direction in life, right? what compels you when you wake up in the morning. So there was this uh, very well-known author, so uh, there's this guy called Niall Ferguson, he's supposed to be like the greatest historian in the century, and he was writing about how in Europe and in the West, uh, the church, he said, fell off the cliff in the 1970s and 1980s, and he himself is, uh, he describes himself as an incurable atheist, and he says that uh, as a result, he observes that in society, there is a lack of meaning, a lack of direction, an emptiness, a void uh, of direction in terms of society. And I remember reading another book uh, where it sort of said that uh, this author was char- uh, you know, sarcastically saying that the only meaning for many people in the West is uh, the pursuit of comfort and of leisure and of uh, sex. And I think that For many people, if you ask them what really motivates them, it's a variety of things, right? It might be uh, the goal of fitness, right? You know, to to get really fit, to go to the gym or to run faster and faster in the marathons. Or it could be hobbies like, you know, like cooking or craft or arts or playing computer games or playing golf or some sort of sport. It could be leisure, you know, planning for the next holiday or eating. So just uh, last week, it was quite interesting, I, I met this... A uh, person at dinner around China, uh, Chinese New Year, and he asked me where I lived, and I said, "Oh, around Hillview." And he said, "Oh, very good Italian food there." And I said, "Where do you? Where's your church?" I said, "Oh, Upper Serangoon. Very good chicken rice there." So I said, "You know, everything, every place I I told him is it was associated with uh, some food, right?" So you know, some people live for food, and some other people live for maybe sex and love and relationships. So uh, Ro uh, Rohintan, who's a lecturer at ETCA, passed me this book for my 50th birthday a while ago. And I've been reading it, and the, the author was saying, you know, as Christians, we are to be the light of the world. And we're supposed to be the light of the world. And we are the light that shines in the darkness. And the core of our distinctiveness must come, first and foremost, from our distinctiveness in what drives us, what motivates us, what shapes us and controls us. Because if, if we are just different on a surface level, we're just dif- different on a surface deep level, then actually we're just really hypocrites, because deep down inside we're like the same as everybody else. So today in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Corinth. Okay, so if you look at the map here, okay, he was writing many, many years ago to a group of Christians to the church in Corinth. And he begins in this section by saying in verse 8, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body 
or away from it. Now, if we look at this section, the first part, the we, is very specifically Paul and the other ministers that he's uh, working with, like Timothy and Silas. Okay, so it's like Paul, Silas and Timothy are writing, and it says, we commend you, later he says, right, we commend you this. So, he's talking about themselves, and he says, look, everything they do, their goal in life, their purpose in life is to please God, right, to please Jesus, Every thought, every word, every action, every instinct of the mind and the heart and the will is actually shaped by the question, am I pleasing Jesus with this decision? And I think this is very different from, uh, from many Christians right, that we meet. Because, you know, sometimes we meet Christians and sometimes they ask questions like, oh, you know, should I be using pirated uh, material? Or, you know, should I be sleeping with my girlfriend or boyfriend or should I have sex before marriage or you know, should I take this particular job even though I know that it's not good for me as a Christian? And the question that they're really asking is how far can I go before I sin? But you notice here Paul and Timothy and uh, his uh, fellow ministers, the way they approach the question, the biblical approach to the question is by doing this action, by having this thought or this impulse, does it please Jesus? That is the question that they that they use as a criteria for their life. And this shapes their distinctiveness. And the reason is, it says, it goes on to say in verse 10, for, because, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, if we look at this passage, it seems as if Paul and his fellow ministers are shaped by their awareness that Jesus is the judge. Right? Jesus is the judge. And this shapes all of their life in wanting to please Jesus because they know that their actions are going to be judged by Jesus, the judge. Now, he's not talking about salvation by works. right? He's not saying that, oh, you know, the last day if you do more good things then bad things, you'll be saved. Because we know, uh, if we've gone through the book of Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, that all of us sin, and, and the nature, very nature of God is that when you sin, you must pay for that sin. God takes that sin into account and it must be paid for. Therefore, we are only saved because Jesus has paid for our sins. We have broken God's law and we must pay for it. So, in the next slide, you see that later on in this passage, uh, it talks about how Jesus is the one who died for us. Jesus is the one who reconciles us to Christ, uh, to God. Jesus is the one who has no sin, who becomes sin for us. And therefore, when it says here that uh, in verse ten that we must all before appear before the judgment seat of God as Christians, we know that when we appear before the judgment seat of God, we will be able to pass through judgment. Because Jesus Christ has paid for our sins. But it doesn't mean that as Christians we can just do whatever we want, right? Because it says here that we must please our Lord Jesus because He will still judge us. We must still give an account for the things that we do in the flesh, the things that we do in our lives, whether good or bad. Even though Jesus has paid for our sins, we must never be flippant in the way that we live, because we know that Jesus will still call us to account for the way that we live. 
So I was remember when I was working before, it was very annoying because I had this workmate and he kept using Jesus as a swear word, right? You know, Jesus, he, you know, like whatever thing he was like, you know, his favorite word was Jesus, but not in praise, but as a swear word, right? Or as, you know, in frustration. But we don't see Jesus as a swear word. As Christians, we see Jesus as the judge. And because Jesus is the judge, we want to please him. Because on the last day, even as Christians, we will have to give an account for the life that we live. But in verse 11, it goes on to say, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Now, you can see that actually, uh, sorry if you know this is very heavy on Sunday morning, but you can see that there's a logic to what he's saying, right? Please the Lord Jesus because he is the judge, but because he is the judge, we know what it is to fear the Lord Jesus and to persuade others. Because for us as Christians, we know that, okay, we will face Jesus as the judge, but we have Jesus, the Savior, who will pay for our sins. But if we know that Jesus is also the judge of those who do not have his forgiving death, when they sit before the judgment seat of God, they will face hell and condemnation and judgment for eternity. Now, a few days ago, uh, I just happened to stumble across this YouTube video of this Christian man who was like, basically being grilled by this talk show host on American TV. And, uh, you know, the talk show host made it very obvious that he thought that Christianity was really stupid and uh, it was, in his words, anti-intellectual. And you could see the crowd was very supportive of this talk show host. You know, they were clapping every point he made, every mocking word he was talking about, you know, the virgin birth, he was mocking the, the Bible, he was mocking Jesus Christ. But this Christian writer, I felt, did an excellent job. He was very calm. He replied very faithfully to the Bible. And... As I was watching it, I felt fear. I felt fear for the crowd, and I felt fear for this talk show host. Because the reality to me, as I reflected on today's passage was, even though these people didn't know the fear of the Lord Jesus as judge, I knew the fear of the Lord Jesus as judge. And I knew that if these people continued in their mocking ways, At the last day when Jesus came, they would be facing God's wrath and judgment for eternity. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. You see, the motivation of the fear of the Lord logically leads to us wanting to persuade our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, our relatives, about Jesus Christ as the Savior. You see, in verse 20 to 21, later on in this passage, we see that this is what Paul is doing with his life. He wants to tell people, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God through Jesus. On Christ's behalf, be reconciled with God. Now, the problem as we look at this passage is, uh, the Christians in uh, Corinth, as you see in verse 12 to verse 13, they, they seemed a bit embarrassed uh, for Paul and Timothy and Silas. You know, it's almost like 
they were embarrassed because Paul, Timothy and Silas were so clear in their fear of the Lord and wanting to persuade others. Uh, it's almost like, um, I remember many, many, many years ago in Australia, if you go to the beaches, the, the holiday beaches in Australia, they have these things called beach missions. I don't know whether they're still like, around. Right? But what happens is, Christians take time off work. They go to the beach and they set up these things called like kids clubs or beach clubs where you know, kids come and then they have activities but they also share the gospel. So I went to the beach for a holiday and there were these Christians running their beach kids club. And you know, as a Christian, it can, you know, I sort of feel embarrassed right? because you know, these people are coming around to the people at the beach asking them if they want to come to the beach club. One, one thing, they drop off their kids at the, at the kids club. It's the same thing, right? It's like the Christians at Corinth, they saw Paul and Timothy and Silas doing their evangelism and they also got a bit embarrassed, right? They're like, oh no, we, we don't really know them. We're not really these born-again gung-ho Christians, right? We are like the, 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 the more respectable Christians. But, but Paul says in verse 12 to 13, right? He says, oh sorry, verse 11b onwards, what we are is plain to God and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those to take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So there were people who were like saying, oh, Paul, Timothy and Silas, they are out of their mind, you know, like they are, they are, they are so gung-ho for God. It's embarrassing. But then Paul is actually saying that actually all of us should have the same motivation and the same drive that he has. Because if you have the fear of the Lord, then you will try to persuade others to be reconciled to God. You see, it's amazing, isn't it? Why would people in their right mind take time off to go to the beach and not like just chill out, but, but basically spend their time and energies having a beach club to try to evangelize people and uh, have people you know, be abusive to them. I mean, that's kind of like a you're out of your mind kind of action, right? But, but they do it because they recognize that these people need to be saved because if they're not saved, they will face the judgment of God. And that's exactly what we have to, 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 to embody in ourselves, right? It's not something which is exceptional. This is what the logic of knowing Jesus is about. If Jesus is the judge, when Jesus comes again and he will judge, then it must mean that we must also seek to persuade others. So the fear of Jesus, uh, the, up here, as the judge, makes us accountable for our actions. We, we must give an account of our actions before Jesus one day. But at the same time, the fear of Jesus makes us realize that our non-Christian friends will, will have to face uh, judgment one day if we don't share the gospel with them. So many, many weeks ago, now it seems like such a long time, Christmas last year, right? we were giving out all these free uh, evangelistic books. So I grabbed three. Uh, two ways to live. Why can you trust the Bible? Why did Jesus come? And my intention was to give it to a friend of mine. 
who is of a different religion and a different race from me. And uh, up until the, 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 the beginning of February, I still hadn't given it to him yet. Because, you know, I was like struggling. I was, I, I was reading through the books thinking, okay, which part of, him, of, of reading this book will offend him, right? Because, you know, if I, if I give him something which is offensive, he might not be my friend anymore. But eventually, you know, I, I like very sheepishly sort of passed it to him and said, oh, hey, uh, I was going to give this to you on Christmas, but I thought I'd give it to you now. I hope you don't mind. And, you know, and surprisingly, he, he took it and said, okay, thanks, you know, he'll read it. But why do I bother, right? Like struggling for months and months, having these books in my bag and praying about whether I should give it to him every time I see him. Because my great fear is that if he doesn't hear about Jesus, then when he sits before Jesus one day or when he dies, he won't have heard the gospel and he will not be reconciled with God. So does that shape your life? Does the fear of the Lord Jesus as judge, does that have any part to play in the way that you live today? Does it have any influence in your desire to share the gospel with people? You know, I remember meeting a Christian uh, many years ago, and this Christian was very reluctant to evangelize uh, their family members. And I, I was very puzzled by that, you know, because I was thinking... Why are you so reluctant to evangelize your family members? What will you do at the funeral? You know, it's like if you're at the funeral and uh, you're sitting there or you're standing there in front of the, the coffin, uh, you're asking yourself, where do they go from here, right? And you'll be asking yourself, you know, did I bother to even tell these people about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because they're not just dead. There's eternal destiny in front of them. You know they're going to face judgment. So did you actually take the trouble to persuade them before they died? The passage then goes on in verse 14. It says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, it's a paradox, right? Because on one hand, one of the things that motivates us and drives us and uh, guides us is the fear of the Lord Jesus as judge. But then in verse 14, something else motivates and drives us, and that is the love of Christ. Now, the love of Christ is not romantic love or sexual love. It is Dying love, right? Sacrificial love. Love in action. I want you to look very closely at this passage because it says, I'm convinced, right, in verse 14. We are convinced that one died for all. So the conviction of Christ's love is not some sort of spiritual feeling. It is because you see Jesus dying on the cross for you. You know, whenever we have bad times, there's a temptation where we question Christ's love for us. And we say, you know, how do I know Jesus Christ loves me? How do I know God loves me? Why am I suffering like this? Well, if you go back to the cross and you see the death of cross, that is where the Bible says our conviction of Christ's love is. It is that act of dying on the cross which shows the measure of his love for us. That's why it convinces Paul and Silas and Timothy. 
And it says here that Christ's love compels us. Now this word compel, the Greek word literally means to be constrained, right? If you, if you go and look at the, the, the it's not a dictionary, but uh, you know, if you look at the, the Greek meaning, it, it's like, it, it's like, it's like, you know, you go down a one-way road, okay, there's no U-turn, there's no turn off, you're like constrained to go down this one-way road. And that's what Christ's love is, the, the love of Christ at his death constrains us that we must be compelled to move in a certain direction. And this Christ's love compulsion is not just something that is compelling to Paul, Timothy and Silas. Because if you look at this passage carefully, and actually this is a really amazing passage, right? Because there's so much depth in it. If you look at it carefully, in verse 14 and 15, which is up there, right? Yeah. It compels not just Paul, Silas and Timothy. It compels everyone who he died for. You look at it carefully, right? And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So the we here consists of everybody who is a Christian. Jesus Christ died for us. So we, corporately, not just Paul, must be compelled by Christ's love. Now, if you look at this passage, there's actually a, a parallel thing, right? So, oh, next slide. So when we did the Bible study, there was a question, right, which sort of said, you know, uh, what does it mean that all died? Right? I don't know, maybe I made up. Maybe I made up that question for my own Bible study group. I don't know. But okay, it says all died, right? But, but what does it mean that all died? I mean, I'm still alive, right? I, I presume I'm still alive. This is not a dream, right? right? What does it mean that all died? Okay, Christ died for all and all died. Well, actually, there's a, there's a parallel, right? Can you see the blue? Unless you're colorblind, the different colors, right? So the blue is an explanation of what it means that all died. Because Christ died for you, you die to self. You no longer live for yourself, you die to self. You live for the one who died for you. That's why Christ's love compels you, because He died for you, you no longer live for yourself, you die to yourself, you live for Christ. It's exactly the same in the same idea, oh, am I moving too fast? But you get the idea, right? Okay, the blue is okay. Next slide. Because actually the fear of God, right, led Paul, Silas, Timothy to want to please Jesus in everything they did. In the same way, Christ's love wants to push us to live for Christ. So actually both the fear of Jesus and the love of Jesus are pushing us to do the same thing, to live for Jesus and to please Him in everything that we do. But the question for ourselves as we reflect on this passage is, do we recognize the fear of God in judgment, the love of God in salvation? And does that motivate us to want to live for Jesus and to please Him in everything that we do? Is that what drives you? Is that what you know, constrains you or compels you? Or is it like the world, where we live for ourselves, our hobbies, our leisure, our food, our eating, sex, relationships, whatever. 
Because if we know the fear of Jesus as the judge and the love of Jesus in his death, then it must supersede what the world, the goals of the world, the directions and the compulsions of the world. So if you look here in uh, verse 16 onwards, it says, So, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Okay, so actually the original language is according to the flesh, right? Okay, according to the flesh, right? So we no longer regard people from a worldly point of view according to the flesh. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, and the old has gone, the new is here. So in verse 16 to 17, it's almost like looking at it chronologically and saying, there's this huge divide in your life from the time where you were before you knew Jesus to the, to the time where after you knew Jesus. It's just like this great chasm in your life. And it's such a great chasm that is described as the old creation and the new creation. Okay, we're not talking about the church, we're talking about the individual. Okay? You're the old creation and the new creation. And this before and after experience is so profound and so deep that, that, that it shapes the way you look at things, it shapes the way you live, it shapes your motivations, it shapes who you are in your essence. So I, I referred to this book before, which is a very good book. Um, I think I misplaced it in my home. I can't find it anymore. I only read it halfway, right? But in the past that I read, she did describe her conversion experience as like a car crash impact. She said it was like a train crash impact. That's what the before and after experience is like. And I think that describes what happens here in 2 Corinthians. Right? Because before, you didn't know Jesus as judge, you didn't know Jesus as saviour, you were living for yourself, you were you know, chasing after your own dreams, but after your new creation, you know Jesus as judge, you know Jesus as saviour, you live now for Jesus, you have a different way of looking at everybody, no longer do you see people as rich, poor, smart, not so smart, high or low, SES, you see them as either reconciled in God or enemies of God. If you don't have that change in your life, then we don't really know whether you have become a new creation. Right? You're still the old creation. Now, it says in verse 18 to 21, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us, this, to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this is very important and it's very, again, very deep. Actually, this is an amazingly deep passage. Right? Because it says that all of this is from God. God gives us Jesus. God gives us reconciliation. God does everything for us. He's the one who reconciles himself to us. Right? We don't reconcile ourselves to God. We, God is the one who reconciles himself to us. So, 
Think of it this way. So I was thinking about this illustration. So imagine uh, you and I have a broken relationship. It's because... So the next slide. Okay, so I did something wrong to you. I'm the wrongdoer. You are the wrong. I uh, broke your window. Okay, somehow your car was parked outside and I was very careless when I was walking out. Uh, somehow uh, I broke your, your windscreen. Okay. Okay, one more click. Okay, now in order for there to be a mended relationship, right, this wrong done has to be fixed, right? I mean, I broke your window, you're angry at me, rightly, justifiably so. Unless I fix your window, uh, there will always be that lingering unhappiness and, and broken relationship, right? So, in order for that uh, window to be fixed, well, I have to fix it, and, then, and then, then, then we are in the process of being reconciled. Well, what's happening here is, in the next slide, right, the ro- we are the ones who have wronged God. Right? I mean, we didn't break His window, but we've broken His laws, we have failed to do things He wants us to do, the things that we, we, we shouldn't have done, we've done. And this barrier, this thing that needs to be fixed is sin. But, the person who is wronged, God himself who is wronged, actually is the one who pays for our sins by sending his son Jesus. That's why it says all this is from God, isn't it? It's not as if we paid to remove sin in ourselves so that we can be reconciled with God. God is the one who sends Jesus to, to remove sin so that he can be reconciled back to, 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 to us, even though he was the one who is wronged. And therefore, because of that, it says here, if you look very carefully again, in verse 21, right? God made him who had no sin to be sin in, in, uh, for us, so that in him, so the, the, the him here is Jesus, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. What does it mean, the righteousness of God? The righteousness of God literally means that in Jesus, we have the righteousness that comes from God. We have the righteousness that is acceptable before God. Okay, uh, you have to think a bit more about it. It's a, something else you have to think about, right? But you said, you know, like, we can be very righteous among ourselves, right? Like, we can look at ourselves and, you know, well, that guy is a really righteous person or that girl is a really righteous person. But that's a righteousness that belongs to ourselves, right? It's a human righteousness. It's not a righteousness which is of the level of God. It's not a righteousness which is acceptable to God. That righteousness of God only comes because all sin has been taken away from us and put on the one who has no sin, which is Jesus Christ. So in this new creation, we are the reconciled ones. We are the righteous ones. And we are the responsible ones. See, you notice there what I've done? There are three R's, okay? The righteous... The, uh, the, uh, the reconciled and the responsible. Because it says there that those who are reconciled are given, in verse 18, a ministry of reconciliation. So we have been reconciled, but we have this message that we have to give to the world so that other people will be reconciled to God. I think one of the problems for us as Christians is we are very individualistic. You know, we, we think... Christ died for me. Christ died for me. 
But that's not what it says, right? Because in the next slide... Oh, okay. Next one. It says, Christ died for all. And through the death of Jesus, God was reconciling the, the world. See, He wasn't just doing it for me. The love of Christ is not just for Andrew, right? Or, you know, for somebody else here. It's, it's for the world. It's for all. And because Christ's love is for the world and all, well, once we understand Christ's love, it compels us to want to share this message of reconciliation to the world, to others, so that Christ's love will be fulfilled and would actually go out into the world to do its job to save and to reconcile people to God. And I think that that's a very, very important mark of being a Christian. Christ died for all. Christ reconciles the world. It means that if we have been reconciled to God, our role is to bring this message of reconciliation to other people. Now, I know that this passage has a lot of interesting things uh, happening, but I want to point you to one last one in verse 20. Okay, so verse 20, look at me in the second half of verse 20. It says, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Okay, so this is a really, really weird sentence. Because Paul was writing to who? To Christians, right? If you look in chapter 1, he calls them brothers, right? And he calls them saints. So he's writing to Christians. But here he says, we implore you, we beg you, be reconciled to God. And this is a command, okay? This is not like a, a suggestion. Be reconciled to God is an imperative verb. It is a command. So why would he say this to Christians? Because they are really reconciled. Right? They've already accepted Jesus. They've already forgiven. Why does he say, we beg you, be reconciled to God? I think what he's saying is, if you have not had that before and after experience, if you are not living like a new creation, if you don't have the fear of the Lord Jesus as judge compelling you, and the, Christ of, the love of Christ compelling you, so that you want to persuade other people, and you want to share the message of reconciliation to people, then maybe you really haven't understood what it means to be reconciled with God. Maybe you really haven't, in your heart, uh, uh, you know, really accepted the reconciliation that God has given because you don't really understand judgment and you don't really understand salvation. Because if you really understood judgment and you really understood salvation, then you want to persuade others and bring the message of reconciliation to people. And that's why that's here, isn't it? Because there is that danger that we come to church, go to Bible study, uh, you understand the Bible, but Fundamentally, the goal of your life, the motivations of your life, your compulsions of your life, are not the fear of God or the love of Christ. And therefore, you're, you're not really living for Christ at all. You're just still living for self. You're not a new creation. And you're not willing to share the gospel of people. So Paul says, be reconciled to God. Understand what it really means. Accept what it really means so that you will live out this new creation. 
So in conclusion, I uh, recently met uh, a friend of mine for lunch. And, uh, and this friend of mine had uh, recently had a health scare not too long ago. He was going for lunch a while ago. And uh, he became very breathless after lunch. He was very pale and sweating. So he told his friend, uh, can you drive me to the A&E? So they went to A&E. And then the, the nurse there said, uh, uh, what are your symptoms, right? And uh, he told, she told him, he says, oh, come straight in here. So, you know, usually A&E, you wait like two and a half hours. Anyway, so he cut the queue, went inside. And uh, apparently he was like suffering a, some sort of like heart problem. And they said, oh, uh, we can't discharge you. You've got to stay overnight. And the very next day, uh, he, had a, he had a heart bypass surgery. So when I had lunch with him, I had my normal stuff, and he had yong tao fu soup. And then uh, he tells me now he re- exercises very regularly. And after we met, he gave me this uh, packet of uh, famous Amos chocolate chip cookies. So I said, he said, I said, well, why are you giving me this? He said, oh, you know, someone gave me this, but I can't eat this anymore. Right, no. My doctor says I can't eat all this unhealthy food. So he gave it to me. Unbelievably, you know why it's so healthy, right? He, he finished it when we had our staff meeting. Um, but you know, you can see that this man had a very clear before and after experience in his life. You, could, you know, it's like you could tell, it's like night and day, here was this guy who like, you know, who used to eat all sorts of uh, stuff, and now he only eats Yong Tao Fu soup. And then, you know, he watches what he eats, he, he exercises very vigorously. I think for us as Christians as well, what this passage is saying is that from now on, after we accept Christ, we also have a before and after experience. Right? We are a new creation now. We don't regard people according to the world. We don't regard people according to the flesh. We see them through the prism of the fear of Jesus as judge, and the love of Christ at the cross. And when we view the world and people, it must mean that we also want to share the gospel with them, we want to share and persuade them to be reconciled with God. Now, if you don't have that attitude, if you don't have the fear of the Lord or the love of Christ shaping you, molding you, constraining you and compelling you, then you need to listen to what Paul is saying, right? imploring you and begging you, be reconciled to God. Because if you are reconciled with God, then it's incompatible that you don't have the fear of God, the fear of Jesus, sorry, and the love of Jesus shaping your life. So I hope that... Uh, oh, I was going to end with these last questions. Actually, it's for the 4pm service because they have Q&A. But I thought it was helpful for us as well. So the questions are, how has the fear of the Lord Jesus as judge changed your life? How has the love of Christ in His death for you change your life? And how has it caused you to try to persuade others or call others to be reconciled with God? Why or why not? Okay, let's close a word of prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that as Paul has said so strongly in your word, that what should drive us, what should constrain us, what should compel us is the fear of Jesus as the judge. The love of Jesus on the cross. With those both compelling and paradoxical motivations in our lives, we recognize that we, we are new people. We do not live for ourselves, but we live for Jesus Christ.
And part of living for Jesus Christ is to spread the message of reconciliation that his death brings. That Jesus did not just die for me, but Jesus died for all. That he didn't just reconcile me to you, but he reconciled the world to you. So we pray that we will be used as your instruments to persuade others to bring the message of reconciliation to people around us. Even though it may seem like we are out of our minds, help us to recognize that we have a clear conscience before you because we are doing it not because we fear man or we are living according to the flesh, but we are doing it because we know of the reality, the certain reality of Jesus coming to judge us. And we know the certainty of what Jesus did in history, which is to die for us on the cross. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.